If you do have a Bible, turn with me, please, back to that passage that we read from in Job chapter 9. And I want us to uh, look at this passage this evening, but with particular focus, if you on verse 2. Verse 2 says, I know it is server truth, but how should man be just with God's questions? There's a question there in our text this evening, and questions are a necessary part of life, aren't they? Especially vital for learning. And during the course of a day, we may be asked all sorts of questions, lots of different types of questions that we get asked. Some questions that we get asked, we might call closed questions, questions that require a simple yes or no answer. Did you lock your car? Yes or no. Did you remember to turn the oven on? These sorts of questions, closed questions. Other questions, of course, require a little bit more thought, don't they? What do you think of your new job? Why did you choose that particular car? And so on. We get all asked all sorts of questions, don't we, in our, in our lives. And, of course, some questions are loaded questions. They come with something behind them. Or they may be leading questions or rhetorical questions. And, of course, if you have young children, it seems that you spend most of your day answering questions. I heard a, a statistic the other day that the average four-year-old asks 400 questions a day. And there's lots of different types of questions that we have to answer in life. But there are some questions which are vital questions. Questions which are crucial to life and death. Questions which are urgent. Questions which are crucial. Questions which require an answer. Something that we cannot just put off and and ignore. They're imperative. They're significant questions. And in this passage that we just read from and in this verse that we were just I just directed your attention to, there is a very vital question. That verse 2 there, you notice what Job says at the end of it. How should man be just with God? It's a vital question. And this evening I want us to look at this question that Job brings to our attention because it's a question that demands and merits an answer. It's a question that is highly significant for each one of us because it concerns mankind. He says, how should man, how should a man, or how should mankind be just with God? And therefore this question is a question that concerns you and it concerns me. It's a question that's imperative and it's crucial because the answer to this question will either lead to eternal life or it will lead to eternal death. Now, this question that Job asks here, how should a man be just with God? It leads down a logical line of reasoning. It leads to very logical conclusions. And I want to follow some of these logical conclusions with you this evening. And the first thing that I want us to notice this evening about this this vital question that Job asks here is that man is unrighteous. Man is unrighteous. Or to put it another way, man is not just. Man is not just with God. Instead, man is sinful. In this passage that Job uses this 
language and imagery of a courtroom. He's imagining being stood, as it were, within a court. He imagines, as it were, being summoned to stand trial before God. He imagines, as it were, being led to the dock to make his case, to answer searching questions before his almighty maker. And as he does so, he asks this vital question. And the obvious implication is that man in his current condition... Man, as he stands before God, is unjust, he's unrighteous, and and therefore he is undone. Job says, in a sense, look, man is a sinner. He says, look, how should man be just with God? Why? Because he's a sinner. How could he ever stand before God? The word that Job uses here for man, it's a word that's used in Scripture to especially highlight the frailty and the mortality of man. You just go back to Job chapter 7 and verse 1. He uses the same word here. He says, Is there not an appointed time to man upon earth? You see, he says, look, man's existence is short and fleeting. Man is transient. Man is, in a sense, insignificant before God. You remember David's words in Psalm 8. He says, What is man that thou art mindful of him? But the word that that Job uses here for man, it not only points to man's mortality, but it also leads us and directs us to man's depravity. Just turn over to Job chapter 15. Job chapter 15, and the same word is used again. Job chapter 15 and verse 14. This time it's Eliphaz speaking, and he says this in Chapter 15 and verse 14. What is man that he should be clean? And he which is born of a woman that he should be righteous. He says, look, you know, man is filthy. Man is unclean. Look at verse 16. How much more abominable and filthy is man which drinketh iniquity like water. He says, look, man just drinks and drinks iniquity to satisfy his thirst. Man is sinful, he's stained, he's depraved. The heart of man is deceitful, as we thought this morning, and desperately wicked. And in the passage that we just read from, we read that there is none righteous. No, not one. In that passage, Paul said, there is none that doeth good. No, not one. We turn over with me into the book of Job again, Job chapter 25. Because here in Job chapter 25, we have almost exactly the same question asked by Bildad. Job 25 and verse 4, he says, How then can man be justified with God? Or how can he be clean that is born of a woman? Behold, even to the moon, and it shineth not. Yea, the stars are not pure in his sight. How much less man that is a worm and the son of man which is a worm. And you see, the point that's being emphasised here is that man is sinful, he is unclean, he is impure, he's broken God's law. Remember the scene we just said that Job is painting here is of a courtroom and the person that is standing in the dock before the great judge is guilty. By nature, man is sinful. By practice, he is sinful. He's broken God's law and therefore he must face the penalty. And Job says to us, look, this is man. How could he be just before God? Friends, that's, that's you and me tonight. 
Before God, we stand as sinners and we stand as guilty sinners. You see, we may like to point the finger at others. We do, don't we? Whether we do it out loud or not, but perhaps we turn on the news and we look at others and we see the sins of others and we love to point the finger at them and list their sins. But the truth is, are we any better? But of course, the truth is that we're all under sin. The passage that we just read from in Romans 3, remember what it says in 22 and 23, there is no difference for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And and this is the truth here of the universal depravity of man. And we know it because our own conscience testify of it. The law of God is written on our hearts And like Job, we have to say here in verse 2, I know it is so of a truth. He knows that man could never be just with God. He knows that he's sinful. He knows he's undone. And friends, tonight, do we realize this? Do we realize that before a holy God, we are unrighteous in his sight? But this leads us on to a second logical conclusion. Not only do we see man's depravity, do we not only see that we're unrighteous before God, but we see that God is holy. That's the logical conclusion that Job is coming to here. Now, a few weeks ago, we were, we were in Job chapter 8, the previous chapter, Bildad's speech. And you remember how uh, Bildad had pointed to the fact that God was just and that he was perfect and that he was righteous. You remember that in, particularly in verse 3 there. He says, doth God pervert judgment? Or doth the Almighty pervert justice? Again, these were rhetorical questions that, that Bildad was using. He was saying, look, we know that God is a just God. We know that he is righteous. And you come to the end of the passage, verse 20. He says, behold, God will not cast away a perfect man, neither will he help the evil doers." Till he fill thy mouth with laughing and thy lips with rejoicing. They that hate thee shall be clothed with shame. And the dwelling place of the wicked shall come to naught. You see, Bildad says, look, you know, this is what God is like. We know it. God is righteous. God is just. That's his very nature. Everything he does, every action is right and good. Remember, of course, Bildad had said this in a very callous way. He told Job, look, you don't think highly enough of God's. You don't think highly enough of the righteousness of God. And Job says here at the beginning, I know it is so of a truth. I know that what you're saying is true concerning God's justice and God's righteousness and God's holiness. God is just, he says. God is righteous. God is holy. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, Isaiah 6 reminds us. This is the one attribute of God, of course, that pervades all his other attributes. God is pure. He has a purer eyes than to behold evil and canst not look on iniquity. And so as we place these two pieces of information together, that man is unrighteous on the one side and that God is, is holy on the other, Job is showing to us here man's total inability to, to endure the searching scrutiny of God. None of us can stand before God's just ways and his justice. You see, friends, before a, a holy God, sinful man is utterly undone. He, he is woefully hopeless. Remember what the psalmist said in Psalm 130. Remember those words. 
how he, he comes to God and he says, If thou, Lord, shouldest mark iniquities, O Lord, who shall stand? If thou, Lord, shouldest mark iniquities, O Lord, who shall stand? And Job realises that here, look, if we were to stand in the dock before God and we were given time to uh, you know, to present a case, he realises that his argument would utterly fall apart. He realises it's utterly futile to even try and attempt to have a, a reasoned argument with God. You notice what he, he says there in verse 3. He says, if he will contend with him, he cannot answer him one of a thousand. Job says, look, if I was to take God on in, in the courtroom, if I was to contend with him, if I was to, to present my case to him, even if I was to do it in the most convincing way, even then Job realises his innumerable failings and his countless sins would condemn him. You see, he can, know, he can just offer no defence for his actions or his words, or his thoughts. He knows he could never satisfy that, that heart-searching investigation of an all-wise and an all-knowing God. You know, in, a, in, a, in the world of law and courtrooms today, you know it's best, don't you, to seek a lawyer. If you ever have to go to court, it's best not to stand on your own. It's best to seek legal advice and legal help, isn't it? Because you hope that if you employ a lawyer, they understand law, they understand the way the courtroom works, and they may be able to present your case, they may be able to help you. And of course, if you can afford it, you try and pay for the best lawyer. Because you know that perhaps the best lawyer may be able to twist things and use rhetoric, and they may be able to use all their cunning to get you out of a situation. And so at times you can find a man who's evidently guilty, can walk out of the courtroom as if he had no crimes. And Job, but Job says here, look, if, if God will contend with him, he cannot answer him. Even if I employed the best lawyer, even if I employed the, the person who could use all their cunning and all their rhetoric, it would never get me out of it. He cannot answer him one of a thousand. Why? He is wise in heart. You cannot outsmart God's. You cannot outthink, outmaneuver this all-wise, all-knowing God. You see, he's too wise to fool. He's too wise to confuse and trick. He is the God, we read there, who removes the mountains in verse 5. He's the one who shakes the earth. He provides the one who causes earthquakes in this world in verse 6. He commands the sun in verse 7. In verse 9, he's the one who places the constellations in their courses. Job says, look, do you think that I could ever stand and present my case before him and win? In verse 15, he says, though I were righteous, yet would I not answer, but I would make supplication to my judge. In other words, he says this, look, there's just nothing I could say. All I could do is just plead and supplicate. It's hopeless. In verse 20, he says this, If I justify myself, mine own mouth shall condemn me. If I say I am perfect, it shall also prove me perverse. You see, Job realises that the moment I open my mouth, I'm going to condemn myself because I'm sinful. But you know, there are some people today who think that they can. Perhaps you've met people like this. Perhaps there's someone here tonight who's like this. 
They just say to, they, they, they say to you, I just can't wait till I meet God because I've got a thing or two I'm going to tell him. You know what, I'm going to put things to right when I, when I finally sit down with God. We had a, a situation like this at Hamilton. A few months ago we distributed Gospels with a tract round Thirsk and a man wrote back and he said that in the tract it said it talked about God being sovereign and of course the tract was about the pandemic and he he said uh, he wrote back in this letter and I can't remember the exact words he said but he said you say God is in control but I don't think he's doing a very good job it's the same attitude if only I could get a, a word with God I'd tell him what to do Job says here, look, who has hardened their heart against him in verse 4 and have prospered? Do you think that you can harden your heart against God and tell him what to do? God says, Job says here, look, you'll never prosper against God. Remember Jesus told a parable, didn't he, about a, a king who made a wedding feast for his son. And you remember that there was lots of guests invited to the wedding and uh, they refused and then others were invited and they came. And he gets to that point in, in the parable as Jesus tells the parable and he goes, the king is going round the wedding feast and he suddenly finds a man who, who he hasn't got on wedding garments. And the king says to him, how did you come in here? You know, the next words that Jesus uses are very telling because it says to us in that parable that the man was speechless. He couldn't answer this king a word. He couldn't, he couldn't give a reason why he had come into this wedding without a, a wedding garment. And there is a picture of the unrepentant sinner standing before God. You see, when he was asked to provide an argument, he was speechless. And friends, tonight when we stand before God, if we're still in our sin and we're still in our unrighteousness before him who is holy, we'll have no arguments. We'll have no words to say because we'll realise that we're standing before the one who is just, the one who is perfect, the one who is righteous. You recall the parable of the rich man and Lazarus that Jesus told. You remember the rich man, he died and he went into hell and he cries out to Abraham. And if you read that parable, not once does the rich man in hell ever complain of his situation in the sense of saying it is unjust and unfair. He asks, yes, to have a little water to cool his tongue. He asks for mercy from Abraham. But not once does he ever say that his suffering is unjust. Why? Because when the wicked will be cast from the sight of God into that place where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth, it will be just and they will know that it is just. Friends, we have to remember that the Lord our God is righteous in all his works. Deuteronomy 32 verse 4 states that God is a God of truth and without iniquity, just and right is he. And so we've seen these, these two logical things here, that man is unrighteous and we've seen that God is holy. But do we notice a third thing that we can draw from this logically and that is that there is nothing that man can do. Job asks this vital question here, how should man be just with God? And you can almost hear, can't you, this sense of desperation in his voice. How can anyone ever be just before God? Now, of course, Job was in a great affliction. 
But even Job realizes here that, that man is sinful and he cannot stand before God. And, and, and there's this sense in which there is nothing that we can ever do. And Job realizes no matter how much he strives, no matter how much he works, there will, it will never be enough. His merits, his own virtues, his own deeds will never make him just in the sight of God. And therefore there is this, there's this futility to life. No sinner, no person can ever have merit or power before the resplendent God of heaven. No sinner can ever procure their own salvation and work their own righteousness. No sinner can ever make themselves just with God. The prophet Micah tells us this, doesn't he? He tells us that even our religious duties, even the things that we do in terms of coming to church or offering up sacrifices, all these things are worthless. Remember what Micah 6, 6 and 7 says. It says, wherewithal shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the high God? He says, how can I come before the most high gods? He says, shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves of a year old, Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams or with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He says, look, even if I was to offer up my own son to God, would it be enough? And of course the answer is no. There's nothing that we can do. And friends, tonight you coming to church is not going to make you just with God's. Being baptised is is not going to make you just with God. When I'm in Northern Ireland, you meet a lot of people who have this attitude that coming to a religious service, going through various religious ceremonies, will somehow make them right with God. Is that how you've come this evening? Now you see, all attempts to make our hearts and lives pure before God is vain. Did you notice what Job said there in verse 30 and 31 of our passage? He says, If I wash myself with snow water and make my hands never so clean, yet shalt thou plunge me in the ditch and mine own clothes shall abhor me. He says, look, if I was to take the most purest water and wash me, I would never ever even be clean in your sight. I'd still be abominable. I would still be impure. It's hopeless. Augustine, the early church father, said, The sufficiency of my merit is to know that my merit is insufficient. And do we realize that tonight? That all our strivings in this life bring no merit before God's. Paul in that passage that we read said, Therefore by the deeds of the law there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. Friends, tonight as we get to this point, we we could think this is hopeless, this is desperate. Job said, look, we're unrighteous and God is holy and there's nothing that we can do. Where does this leave us? Does this leave us completely hopeless? You can see the, the desperation here in Job. If this, is, if this is where we leave it tonight, then there's just no hope for any of us. But friends, tonight there is a remedy. There is a way that a man can be just with God. There is only one way. There is one solution. There is one situation. And that leads us on to our, our final thought this evening. And our final observation from this passage 
And from the logical thoughts is this, that if a man is going to be just with God, then he needs a substitute. He needs someone who will take his place and stand for him and be permitted to pay the full price that the sinner owes to God. And you see, Job comes to this in an, in an odd way in the end of the chapter that he talks about a daysman. He talks about a man who will be an umpire, someone who will stand between God and man, a mediator. He needs someone who will lay his hands on both. You see, if the sinner cannot pray the price, then he needs one who will undertake and pay the price for him. If the sinner cannot earn a righteousness, then he needs the righteousness of another. If the sinner's merits are insufficient, then he needs the perfect merits of another. And Job alludes to it here, he needs one who is both God and man. One who will lay his hands upon both. And friends, tonight here, here's the wonder of the gospel. Here's the great message of the book that you've got on your lap. Is that there is such a person that's been provided. And his name is the Lord Jesus Christ. And Christ, the Son of God, came into this world. And he came with this very purpose. That was his mission. He was made of a woman. He was made under the law. And why? So that he might redeem them that were under the law. That he might pay the price. You see, Christ came to do what no other son of Adam could ever do. He came to accomplish that which no other ever human being could ever accomplish. And that was to live a perfect life, a just life. Not just a perfect life in the estimation of others, but one that was morally perfect, one that was just in the sight of a holy God. You see, Christ's life was, was a life that in every point he kept the law. We've been thinking about this on Wednesday nights. It was, a, it was one that in, in all points he was, he was perfect. And what the writer to the Hebrews said, he was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. You see, this is what we need. We need a sinless substitute. Every thought and every word and every deed of Christ was measured. If you were to take it and measure it against the straight rule of God's law, it comes up as perfect. You probe Christ's life. You prod it. You come at it from every angle. You look at it from every single one of the Ten Commandments and you'll find that Christ is perfect. He comes forth shining like pure gold, doesn't he? But you see, we may go even a step further than that because not only did Christ live the life that we could never live, that life that was perfect, but then he died the death that we deserve. You see, when a man or a woman is tried in court and found to be guilty, they must pay for their crime. And of course, we hope that the justice system that we have in the land where we live will ensure that the punishment fits the crime. Whether that's a monetary fine, whether that's community service, whether that's time in prison, either way, a punishment is handed out to the one who is guilty. And as that judge's gambit falls and the sentence is given, they have to pay the price that they have been told to pay. And you see, the punishment for sin, the Bible states, the wages of sin is death. That's what we deserve, isn't it? But Christ came, he not only lived that life that was perfect, but then he died that sacrificial death. 
And it was the death of a substitute. He died in our place. He bore our sin in his own body upon the tree. He took our punishments. And there at the cross of Calvary, Christ satisfied divine justice, didn't he? Christ came under the law, and that law demanded death, and he paid it. And friends, tonight do we see this as our only hope? How should a man be just with God, Job asked. How can he ever stand before God and be righteous and be justified in his sight? Well, it's only in Christ. And we might say, we might stress this, it's not only in Christ, but it's faith in Christ. Faith alone in Christ alone. Paul concludes that passage that we read that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law, but he's justified by faith in Christ in his death at Calvary, faith in his precious blood. He points this out all the way through that passage. It's faith in Christ. If you want to be just before God, you've got to be in Christ. And so the question I have to ask you tonight is, are you trusting in this Christ? Are you trusting in his perfect life and his sacrificial death? Are you relying upon that? You see, I said this evening, this is a vital question. Do you see how vital it is? Your eternal destiny hangs upon this question. How do you answer this question? Are you trusting in yourselves and in your merits and in your own righteousness? Or are you trusting in the righteousness of Christ? This question here that Job asks, he says, how should a man be just with God? Let me just say as I close this evening, it doesn't matter how you stand in the estimation of others. It doesn't matter what other people think of you. It doesn't matter whether they think that you're good and right and you're an upright citizen of this country. It doesn't matter what they think. It matters what God thinks. And so we have to answer this question, how are you going to stand before God? Are you going to be someone who stands just? Or are you going to still come a bit like that man in that parable in that wedding? You're going to be stood before Almighty God and you're going to be clothed not in the righteousness of Christ but in your own filthy sin and you're going to be speechless. You know, there's a hymn. It's not in Christian hymns. But it says this. It's got some lovely words. It says, My faith has found a resting place not in device nor creed I trust the ever-living one, his wounds for me shall plead. And then the chorus says this, I need no other arguments, I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. And friends, that's what we need to have on our hearts and I trust that is true for all of us that we have no other argument, no other plea Job realised he couldn't contend with God and so he came and he said it's enough that Jesus died and that he died for me I praise God tonight that we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous and he of course is the one who is able to present us faultless before the presence of his God with exceeding joy. Well, I trust that each one of us tonight will be found trusting, resting in him.